0: Niebuhr's nemesis, coming up on Love Thy neighbor.
1: You're listening to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined with co-hosts Zach Narison and Aaron Duncan. Well, today we kick off our October interviews with a great one that we've been really looking forward to, really excited about uh, for some time. Uh, a quickly rising scholar in Niebuhr world and Christian political thought in general, and he's well-established already. We are joined by Dr. Josh Malden. Uh, Joshua is the Associate Director of the Center of Theological Inquiry, where he has been since 2014, starting out right after finishing his doctoral research at Southern Methodist University. He is the author of many publications, including his most recent work called Bart Bonhoeffer and Modern Politics. And he is the co-editor along with the great Robin Lovin of the work we will be examining at least partially today, which is appropriately named the Oxford Handbook of Reinhold Niebuhr. Joshua, we are so happy you could be on with us today. Welcome. Thanks, glad to be here. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask some general questions about the elephant in the room, the elephant being this ginormous Beautiful book sitting on my desk. Uh, but for the most part, we're going to be zeroing in on a select article or chapter from the book, uh, which is Josh's lone contribution of the volume in his capacity as author. And that is the chapter on who else but the dude who Richard Fox calls Reinhold's quote, old nemesis, Karl Barth. Is that a fair characterization, by the way, Josh? Is, is Barth really Niebuhr's old nemesis? It's funny you bring up Fox because I was just looking at sort of his
2: book recently and I was noticing even more than I think i emphasized in my chapter, how much Fox, he does play up there all the ways in which Niebuhr criticized Bart from early on. Um, I had always initially had more of a view of, you know, they, they, they disagreed in fundamental ways, but they also had certain areas of agreement. But for Fox, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty adversarial relationship. I mean, I, I say in the book, it will in my conclusion of my chapter that uh, I think I, I put it something like Niebuhr thought about Bart more than Bart thought about Niebuhr. I mean, I'm trying to get yeah. in their heads, but I think that's probably true. I don't think Bart sort of sat
0: around thinking and being angry about Niebuhr in the way that Niebuhr did about. <laughs> so Bart. it's kind of like Michigan is always more angry at Ohio state than, you know, yeah. Ohio state is at them. <laughs>
2: exactly. Um, sort of like football teams where one one team believes that the another team is their is their rival and the other team doesn't even yeah
0: <laughs> yeah that's true all right so for our audience the way this is going to work is we've all read josh's chapter on bart and prepared some questions for him and we're just going to go in order i'll ask then zach then aaron and around and around we go until we reach about an hour and then we'll wrap it up so i'll start so josh what a massive uh contribution, um, a massive achievement, uh, this Oxford handbook, how on earth did this beast of a book come together? And sub question, what was it like working with Robin Lovin, the godfather of Niebuhr studies? Well, I worked with Robin
2: uh, Lovin, I've been working with him since 2006. So for about, what is that 18? No, 16 years. um, So I've known him for a long time. And I did my doctoral work with under his supervision at oh my SMU. Goodness, I did
0: not know that
2: yeah in Dallas. so I've known him for a long time and and uh, he he was not at all a, a kind of doctoral advisor who tried to make clones or tried to make everyone read the same people he did. So it, it it really was later that I got into Niebuhr. I mean I did take a Niebuhr course with him in my master's program right before I started my PhD but in no way when I started my PhD I, I didn't have anything about Niebuhr in my proposal. It was more about international law, which I ended up changing in, in any case, but not to Niebuhr. I ended up writing on Barton Bonhoeffer, which also was not really what, um, Robin had initially encouraged. It was more just on my own volition. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it goes back. It, it was, it was I mean, it was excellent working with Robin on these kinds of things because he's so learned about Niebuhr. I mean, he's certainly one of the, the, or one of the top two Niebuhr scholars, um, in the world. And, um, So, I mean, it was a wonderful experience, and obviously these kind of books take forever, and there was, I think there were moments when, you know, you start to wonder, will we ever, will we finish it? And We actually didn't take as long as some do, partly because of COVID. I think we had some time around 2020 to really just get these chapters in in
0: order and not let it sort of run on for years and years. Um, How, How long did, when did you start this? So this was published in 2021? Is that yes. right? And then yes. when did you start it? You know, Probably the, the earliest you could say it was started was like
2: 2017 mm. in the sense of um, sending out the well, kind of conceiving of the, the table of contents and choosing names, uh, commissioning essays, and inviting people to write these kind of getting the, the contract through Oxford. So 2017 to 2001, I mean, that was actually pretty much within the range of what they had, what they, Oxford had planned. So we weren't even late, you know, which almost being a little late is just expected in academic publishing. It seems like. Yeah. Um, so I bet again, I think it was because of COVID and again, because we had great authors. Uh, I mean, toward the, one of our feelings was just so much gratitude for the authors themselves and the the great work that they put in it. it one of the other funny experiences I've had just while I'm just kind of rambling here is um, in the year and a half that since I've had the book in hand or about a year, a yeah, year and a half now, I've already a couple of times, you know, had to write some article for something, and I ended up pulling this off and consulting it, you know, it's because it's not as if it's all, even though I had read it all and copy edited it all, it's not all necessarily fully in my head all the time. And so even I'm already using it as a like a reference work, which is a funny experience to have.
0: I had just finished my PhD two years before this came out. And this would have been incredible to have. I yeah. mean, it would have been fantastic. Yeah, good. Um, and how did you get into Niebuhr in general? It, this, I don't know, like, I guess, what turned you on to him? I mean, it might be like going back to your previous question that, you know, working closely
2: with with Robin Lovin, at some point, you're going to just start writing on Niebuhr sort of. Yeah, we yeah. <laughs> don't even <laughs> almost without intention. I mean, I, I, like I said I did my whole dissertation. I don't think I'm not sure Niebuhr is even in the index in my whole in my first in my book, Bart Bonhoeffer and Modern Politics. He might be, but like once maybe.
3: Um,
2: And, you know, even since this, even since this book came out, I've kind of more and more been reading Niebuhr. Um, Just, we just sent a couple of my colleagues just sent off another book, edited volume to a publisher on the future of Christian realism, which is looking at Christian realism a bit more broadly, but it's still largely on Reinhold Niebuhr. And I wrote a book, I wrote a chapter for this book on Niebuhr's, uh, Book the Children of Light and the Children of Darkness. So I read that quite closely. Been reading the Irony of American History. So it's it's um there's so much as you you all know. I mean, there's so much in Niebuhr, and something about Niebuhr's work always feels very timely. So when you're looking at, you want to see, you know, what's going on in American politics today, or what about American foreign policy and how things are changing?
3: Yeah.
2: What about fights in the, you know, debates in the church about how the church should be related to society is it's very uh, enriching to always look at Niebuhr because he has so many things to say, even when sometimes it seems so, his context seems so different, uh, one can still learn quite a bit. So it's, it was very kind of natural to just end up, end up uh,
1: reading a lot of Niebuhr. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, as I, you know, said in the email, the original email, you know, we're, we're, we've been thinking a lot about the, the upcoming election. And I mean, that's part of the reason we wanted to have you on and we, we see this, um, kind of conflict between Bart and Niebuhr as uh, I I personally think it can speak volumes to kind of some of the tensions that the church feels in the United States Um, and I guess my kind of first question to throw out to you having kind of gone through this is it's like really clear that Niebuhr seems to think that that Barth's theology is somewhat dangerous, right? Like that it doesn't doesn't call people to action in a way that it should. Like it's it's kind of, it almost actually, it almost represents an inaction, it generates inaction in people. And I think that can be a common criticism in some, from some theological groups in America to other theological groups in America. Um, do, do you think that Barth's theology was as politically dangerous as Niebuhr thought it was? Or do you think it's exaggerated?
2: I'm- I have to admit I'm sort of in conflict over this Um, politically dangerous in what's, I guess maybe unpack more about what you mean by politically dangerous, I guess.
1: Um, Okay. Yeah. No, that's fair. I I probably should have given it a better framework. Um, I meant like in the sense of like, it almost seems like Niebuhr looks at what Bart only acts or or he accuses him, at least, you know, going through your analysis here. He only acts when it's like the very last minute in that moment of crisis, you Mm. know, Bart's theology, all of a sudden, he's like, OK, OK, we can we can take out Hitler when Niebuhr's saying you should have been acting the whole time. You should have been um, mitigating these issues all the time. So Bart but, kind of perpetuates a type of theology of irrelevance in, and yeah, in yeah. ethical uh, political sphere. Uh, just to get specific here, I kind of see some similarities because like, I'm in a reformed tradition and I hear a lot of times like people, I, people criticize my my fascination with Niebuhr all the time because they say he's too, he's too focused on politics. He's too focused Mm. on politics. Mm. And they would be very, what I would say are like Bartian, I mean, they're not Bartian scholars, but they're, that's what they read. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I kind of understand what Niebuhr is like, kind of looking at this and be like, Hey, like you're, you're so afraid of politics until it's the last minute. Mm -hmm. So I guess, do you think that's exaggerated by Niebuhr or do you think that maybe he's, is that, is that making sense in my,
2: yeah, yeah, it is. I, I guess I'm just trying to, um, Think about it more from like the perspective you're coming from. Um, I mean, I think you're you're working in a church, right?
1: Yeah, I'm a pastor. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think part reason I asked that is I think kind of that's where the rubber hits the road. And so for me, it's kind of much easier because I don't I'm not in the church, I'm not, you know, working in a church these days as a pastor. Um, I think in that context, I would have more I would have more difficulty in some sense, and this is probably where I someone like Robin Lovin and I disagree to some extent. Um, I might have a little bit more difficulty seeing how Niebuhr's kind of theology would speak in a in a congregational setting to some extent I mean it, it, at times it can but I actually do see uh, sometimes when I, I think his theology can be a bit thin for uh, and here's where I maybe I'm a bit Bardian actually for kind of the church's proclamation um you know Bart obviously was very political in his uh Not only in his ministry, I mean, not only in his everyday life and the way he interacted as a citizen, but he was even political in his ministry. I mean, he was active in uh, his sermons were political, (laughs) you know, when he was a a pastor uh, for about 10 years in Switzerland before he became a professor of theology. So in a way, he he certainly and and Bart, I mean, Niebuhr acknowledges this, that Bart has political um, opinions and that he's not scared to say them. But for Niebuhr, I would say the problem is he wants Bart to, or he wants any theologian, and therefore including Bart, to sort of index his theological claims very closely to ethical and political norms. He wants them to sort of very, and the other side of that is he wants theological claims to be sort of controlled or uh, influenced by ethical concerns more than he sees Bart doing so i i kind of as i say in the chapter of my in the oxford handbook i think they're doing pretty different things it's i don't necessarily think it's so much that they're answering the same question in different ways but that they're actually engaged in different projects. Niebuhr himself kind of admits this in the sense that when you know there's many places where he sort of says i'm not a theologian he says i've never claimed to be a theologian uh, he says something like theology is not my specialty and i've never really been that interested in trying to learn the the niceties of theology he's a social ethicist and so on so it's it's partly just a question of what are you trying to get out of the two thinkers and and where do
1: you think that they're
2: they're most helpful
1: yeah I, yeah I, I guess i just feel free to disagree up. yeah i think it's more no, interesting just, to just, debate me I, I would just follow that up with this like i guess i'm seeing a connection between and, and maybe I mean you make the distinction between Bart and bartian you know what I mean between between the the, the school of thought that falls after mm-hmm. um, I mean i I find that I relate to what like the criticisms that are leveled by Niebuhr and kind of his not fear but um his concern right like he looks at Bart and he sees he's like this is generate this otherworldliness is generating inaction. people are able to they don't make a stand when they need to make a stand or they don't speak mm-hmm. until it's the very last minute mm-hmm. Um, and so I like, I personally like relate to that, but I also see how it can be taken advantage of by, um, you know, political forces, I guess you could say. right? Uh, right. Yeah. So, that, yeah. So I kind of see the danger there. So, you know, I mean, I kind of see, I, I, right. I feel that. And so it's hard to, yeah, I think he calls it quietism of Bart's theology.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, you can, as you say, you can see the danger on both sides because just as much as there's a danger of, of, kind of a political inaction or a theology that's so floating above the world that it doesn't have anything to say to the world you can also see um the danger of christian proclamation that you know too closely uh well let's say collapses the the preacher's own personal political opinions with the the gospel i mean without this sort of sense of you know maybe (laughs) We don't necessarily know what God thinks. Uh, we we do our best. We try
0: our best, but we we leave judgment in some sense uh, to God. So, so is there a dialectic that we could kind of create between Bart and Niebuhr? Kind of uh, two poles that we should try to stay away from. Yeah, I mean, say more. I, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> what, what, oh, this is for uh, you, man. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it would be a
3: dialogue between Bart and Niebuhr, it would Be between Niebuhr and liberal Protestantism, then would be the dialectic mm-hmm. because Why is that? well in uh josh's chapter he brings up this distinction between well Niebuhr is charting a third way mm-hmm. beyond liberal protestantism and bart and mm-hmm. bartian radical protestantism so i don't know if you could i'm thinking that's could, the
0: dialectic right there
3: th- between liberal protestant and radical protestantism or between
0: yeah or maybe not that maybe between Bhar and otherworldliness we could call it Protestant or uh, uh, so he, and you bring this up, Josh, uh, the kind of Niebuhr wanting to retain elements of both yeah. uh, enlightenment and Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Niebuhr does find a dialectic between the two between the enlightenment's child, which would be naturalism. Mm-hmm. We don't want to go to that extreme and get rid of God entirely. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to, you know, create this orthodoxy that draws you out of the world and away in your concern from the world. So mm-hmm. I, I personally think that Niebuhr kind of already has a, a ready dialectic there to apply for the, for the pastor and the parishioner. He's not used that way much. And we, mm. we'll have that conversation later about why Niebuhr isn't as relevant in the church. Mm. Um, but- well, so you're just-
2: saying that, that that dialectic is already present in Niebuhr. If we just read Niebuhr well enough, we don't need to sort of pair him with anything else. We need to just look at the richness of his thought.
0: I'm biased. Okay, no, I, mean, I, I yeah.
2: like that idea. And it
0: also depends on which era of Niebuhr. You know, he develops, yeah. he becomes more theological, especially. I think know, later like, on when he incorporates difference. more Augustine, I think that that is kind of when mm-hmm. he finds that sweet spot. Yeah. You know? so Nate, I'm partly Nathan thinking Augustine. I've
2: been reading a lot of his earlier stuff. And that's where you really are like, wow, I mean. You know, even the interpretation of Christian ethics, even there, it's very historical. It's sort of saying like, here's the way these ideas develop and like the vet here's the benefits of them and the, the weaknesses. And we kind of have to draw that out and so on and so forth. But it, by the time you get to nature and destiny, it, it's uh, more kind of what you're
0: yeah, suggesting um, mm. given this next question.
3: Yeah. Well, thanks Josh for um, checking on, man. Much appreciated. Um, yeah. So, I guess this question is like kind of a two parter. So, the key emphasis of this chapter or the perspective comes from Niebuhr, which, which makes sense of what you said earlier, later in, the ch- in your chapter, where he says, you know, uh, Niebuhr thought more of Bart than Bart of Niebuhr. So, coming from Niebuhr's perspective, uh, the picture painted of Bart is as a theologian who is guilty of some major confusions, you know, calling God this holy other thing results in an irrevocable division between morality and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, you know, Bart does go and make practical moral judgments, you know, when it comes to Nazism, and then, you know, saving his friends from Hungarian communism by remaining silent. So in what ways do you think Niebuhr has added, or, you know, created this portrait of Bart as like, this otherworldly theologian and thinker and, and in what ways do you think that plays on how we think of like someone like Sandy Hauerwas
2: yeah I mean I think Niebuhr was uh an important sort of early re- you know part of the early reception of of Barth not yeah. least just because he could read German well and was reading his works mm-hmm. uh, well before they were in English and I think you could argue that he uh had an important influence on the American readings of Bart from an early period. I mean, another thing, one of the things you find in f- the Fox biography, you know, Richard Fox has this very good biography of Niebuhr, um, which I don't think is commented on enough. That we have such a good biography, which is really valuable. Um, but you know, he he makes it clear that the uh, Niebuhr's critique of Bart began very early. It wasn't like you, you know. One of the pictures you sometimes hear is that they, Niebuhr and Barth were both neo Orthodox theologians um, who, you know, and and there's some truth to this, but who were rejecting liberal Protestantism and they made the same kind of rejection and therefore they had this sort of similar move, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, in the 1920s, let's say. And then uh, only later did Niebuhr, sometimes it sort of suggested, only later, later did Niebuhr start to sort of see problems with Barth's thought. But actually, Niebuhr was really troubled by Barth's thinking from very early. I mean, from pretty much as early as, mm-hmm. as Bart was, was becoming yeah. well-known.
0: Yeah. I had the perspective coming into this Yeah, before reading this, that it's kind of like, you know, they're kind of ships in the night for a while. They, they didn't really have a whole come to blows or anything like that. And they're kind of coexisting. Um, and then all of a sudden at the world council of churches, like something blows up and then, mm-hmm. then that begins kind of their, Right, The adversarial, you know, reputation that they developed, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. I mean, and the other thing I just wanted to kind of back up on that previous question is it really is true that both Niebuhr and Bart had very important criticisms of the liberal Protestantism, you know, mm-hmm. that they inherited. It's mm-hmm. completely true. they They both were critical of it for similar reasons. Um, but Bart or Niebuhr just thought that what Bart put in its place was a kind of untenable positivism of revelation we might say a view Mm -hmm. that we can just sort of have this authority we can just sort of appeal to revelation and begin from what we know as revealed from God in scripture and it's really at that point the difference between them is is mainly epistemological I would say more than Mm -hmm. um, even about politics it's just Niebuhr just found that kind of epistemology of revelation um, kind of fundamentalist he would call it at times uh, orthodox uh, pre-modern in some sense and completely um, untenable
0: yeah you bring up at one point uh, yeah. that Bart kind of dismissed Niebuhr as just being quote distinctly American having a distinctly American way of thinking to be avoided mm. what does that mean
2: I mean, I, mean I,
0: I have my suspicions but what does that it mean might have you? been at the moment I was thinking uh, I don't
2: know the exact plot what i was saying right there but something about kind of american pragmatism i mean right it's kind of jamesian view again this is stanley howard main argument in yeah. uh, with the drain of the universe that howard Watt or that, that niebuhr is basically a jamesian truth is what works um the way we decide what our theology should be is look at what the practical ethical political effects of it would be and if this theology has good political effects then it's worthy of being called true and if not Uh, It's not, I mean, Richard Fox kind of agrees with that uh, interpretation. It's not just Hauerwas' sort of personal, personal. I mean, he, there's another line I was just looking at the other day in um, Fox where he notes that um, he was actually comparing H. Richard Niebuhr, Reinhold's brother, who's a very important figure in all this too, um, and saying something to the effect of, you know, H. Richard Niebuhr actually believed that God acted in history, God actually acted in history, whereas Niebuhr believed that the idea of God acting in history was, is a true belief because it has certain benefits for our way of living in the world. And so on. So it's just a, it's a kind of a different, um, it's a different epistle. It's a
1: theologian and an ethicist probably too. Yeah. And one of the things that I kind of took away from this, that I feel kind of embarrassed that I didn't know just how personally involved Niebuhr was. I mean, you can tell by his writing, it's very clear, but it's, I didn't realize he said it so explicitly was that he was, Kind of an apologist, he saw himself, or he like his main one of his main concerns was was that like kind of like the apologetic concern, and I I I, mm-hmm. I thought it was more ethics, but I mean like you highlighted that in his autobiography, he writes in there that he was concerned with making it relevant to, and I was like dang, like that's I didn't realize how personal that that motive was mm-hmm. in his approach. Um, I thought it was just kind of a byproduct of his ethics.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think Christian apologetics was maybe even in his. Professor, professional title is for his professorship at some point. Um, Interesting. But he taught Mm. classes in that as well. I mean, we'll come to, I have a few other points on that I can maybe get to later, but let's keep going.
3: Yeah, sure. Can I just jump in real quick because I do have something with American. So I just want your thoughts on this. I guess this doesn't really have to do with neighbors as much, but I will read this quote. So we're going to be reading a paper with uh, another guest coming on called The King's Chapel and the King's Court. Mm -hmm. And in it, he's praising Jefferson uh, and the, the, with the absolute wall separation in church and state, uh, because it made our high degree of religious plural, plural, pluralism compatible with our national unity. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because um, I'm, I'm really into like radical orthodoxy, and I was listening to John Milbank give a lecture, and quite emphatically and with robust exclamation, he says, "We." I don't know if he means Europeans or British, but we don't have anything to learn from the Americans. The <laughs> Americans have everything to learn from us. And I'm sitting there like, you know, I lived in Britain for six years <laughs> and I'm not going to lie. The the culture and life was a bit better. <laughs> and so I don't know, um, you know, what, what with, with Bart's uh, distinction between being a continental thinker and, you know, in a very uh, prejudiced way calling a, uh, Niebuhr, an American to be avoided. What do you think? Where do you think this clash between continents in America? Where do we meet? That's a philosophical question. Yeah.
2: Mm. I mean, oddly enough, Niebuhr actually would have agreed with you. He he was a kind of Anglophile. Um, mm. You know, he married a, a British woman.
3: Oh, that's right. Um,
2: And not because of that, but actually, you know, through her, he spent a lot of time. I mean, he was already traveling a lot, but especially through his marriage, he spent a lot of time in England and... Scotland, and um, he thought. I mean, it wasn't just like he liked the the country or something. I mean, he he thought that British culture was a uh, kind of more. I mean, I don't even want to just say civilized. It was a more mature society, whereas America was sort of uh, still a, a kind of child, you know, growing and uh, sort of obstreperous and needing to be uh, well, needing to be civilized and so on. So he thought, uh, mm. you know, America could learn a lot from British society, not least oddly, and I mean. He, he was he admired kind of the the way in which you know there was an established church in Britain and the way in which uh I mean he he saw America sometimes it's funny how we, we sometimes we that period of time can seem more modern than we are in today but but Niebuhr saw America as you know there's more of this separation of of church and state more a more secularized society where in Britain as a more Christian society <laughs> I mean that it's sort of odd for us today to think that way I think but although I mean, the death of the queen a couple weeks ago you know you, wow. you see you obviously see the religious uh, all the religious christian imagery there yeah um so i, I guess i'll, I'll just throw away mark the remark there that, that actually he i think he would very much agree that america has a lot to learn from british culture. <laughs> <That's so laughs> interesting. Then, at least then maybe not that was a long time ago and one of the things i want to point out at some point is just the way in which and this is something i've been writing about somewhat in this other chapter i just did for this other book on the future of Christian realism is uh, looking at the way in which America has changed since Niebuhr's time. And I mm-hmm. think part of reading Niebuhr today is just looking at one has to see how different things are today than they were for him. And in some ways, a lot of what he says, I think has to be read in almost a complete opposite way of the, what it meant, meant then. And maybe at some point we can come back to that.
3: Um, maybe Yeah. I would love to it. hear some examples of that. Um, so, yeah.
1: Thank you so much. Well, that's my, I mean, that, that, that actually leads into my next, my next question. Cause like, I'm, I guess I try to be as practical as I can on here. Cause I'm always trying to kind of our part of our, I'd say our mission to some degrees to like, we want pastors to listen to this and, you know, people are involved in ministry to try to give them kind of maybe vantage on how they can address questions in their congregation to do with politics and things like that and theology and philosophy. Um, and, you know, I couldn't help but noticing that their conflict seems to be um, the conflict between the two seems to have become highlighted or um, bigger when it came around the topic of war. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I mean, we actually talked about this conflict somewhat early, very early in the podcast, like some of the first episodes, because it has some of the same questions that were being asked, you know, as uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a hypothetical question, but I thought I'd put it out there to you just having read this. Um, uh, how do you think Niebuhr and Bart would respond to Russia's war on Ukraine? And kind of a question that goes with that would be: How would the apocalyptic nature of the conflict, or or would the the apocalyptic nature of the conflict change their positions? Right? With the with the you talking nukes? Yeah, nukes. <laughs> would the, <laughs> Damn the possibility nukes. of World War Three change maybe how they the urgency yeah. with both address it? I mean, I know that's kind of a big hypothetical question, but yeah. schedule We just want. I mean, I do. I want to get your thoughts on. Yeah, you think and Barth would have looked at this?
2: Mm-hmm. Do you know much about the um? Have you talked much in this podcast, perhaps about the, the debate that Reinhold Niebuhr had with his brother in terms of the mm-hmm. Japanese invasion of Manchuria and China?
3: Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, a few, few times. months ago. Yeah, yeah, okay.
2: That to me is a, a kind of a, a nice parallel. Um,
0: you know where the question was: Should America in, intervene? Is that right? right? In, uh, un- it was, yeah. But
2: oddly enough, the um neither of the Niebuhr brothers you know so so reinhold well well h richard wrote this article in the christian century you know as japan was uh, you know uh, attacking china right they read this article you know called the grace of doing nothing and it was had this whole theology of how at times the best thing one can you know one can do or even a whole country can do is just to simply do nothing and sort of let god's purposes uh roll out i guess you could say and then um and this is the only time that the two Niebuhr brothers, a sort of public dispute arose because uh, Reinhold then soon after re- published an article called, you know, must we do nothing in the Christian century? And then a kind of debate ensued where Reinhold said, you know, we can't just have this theology of, of doing nothing in the face of uh, aggression. The reason I bring it up is the oddly enough, neither of the two Niebuhr brothers um, thought that, there, that the U.S. should militarily intervene. So interestingly enough, the debate was really just about, should there be some kind of sanctions,
0: right? Some Um, kind of embargo.
2: Yeah. Um, Sort of relevant to Ukraine, because I mean, not that many people on uh, in the U S are really urging, you know, let's send in the full U S military and just attack this kind of thing. It's really kind of this debate at the margin in some sense over how, you know, what should the, um, well, yeah, well, how do we arm the Ukrainians in a certain sense? What about saying oh, obviously there's lots of sanctions going on and all these kinds of things. So um all that's kind of background, but and I and I guess I would want to say, I mean, I think I think Nieber would maybe think that the way the US has approached it so far has been pretty good, actually. I
0: think so too. <laughs> and that's
2: yeah. that's not necessarily because I think it's been good, but I just think it's kind of played a, a kind of middle role. Mm. Um, I think on the other hand, um, it's one of those kind of things where future history like what 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 ends up happening will determine a lot about what we think about whether mm-hmm. it's a good thing yeah everything has been done and well. on the
0: ground like what's kind of unfolded and kind of the debate points have been surrounding what zach brought up about the apocalyptic nature and what's really at the center of it is something that Niebuhr was arguably i think Kenan says that he was. Um, niebuhr was a progenitor of, and that is the doctrine of mutually assured destruction mm-hmm. would probably be that thing that we're constantly trying to avoid but still help Ukraine, you know? Um, and uh, and it seems that niebuhr, I, I think you're right. I think that niebuhr, because of that stance on mutually assured destruction and nuclear deterrence, that type of thing, it would have ended up looking a lot like how the us has, has responded
2: i mean part of the 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 the, the h richard debate is i tend to kind of see h richard as you know i think he's more like bart than nieber is like bart let's put it that way at least uh so maybe we can in some in some ways see bart's picture uh in in h richard's thought there not but at the same time of course i mean bart was no was no pacifist by any means uh this i talk about in my my book on bart and bonhoeffer interesting and he was you know very much uh thought that germany should be militarily defeated in world war ii and the the you know allies had a completely just case to you know defeat germany Mm -hmm. um bart said a number of things you know about I mean it's interesting as you say they both lived in a, a nuclear age so bart himself said a number of things about the danger of a world war three which could be our last i think he says exactly that in um evangelical theology and introduction which is a fantastic little book um hmm. a passing remark but i mean he I, I think he would be he certainly would be concerned about the the possibility of nuclear war as we all yeah. are um I don't know if I have much more on that than that though.
1: Yeah, I guess I was just, yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think you pretty much answered it, but I, I guess if the reason, you know, I'm asking is that I see that, that tendency of Bart is like to maybe in this, in this sense, be like, you know, we're not going to get involved in that conflict, not um, mm. allow it to, um, you know, distract us from the proclamation of, of the gospel. Mm. Um, I'm interested in
0: how Bart would respond. Like at what yeah. point
1: does Bart pull the trigger? yeah exactly that's kind of what i was kind of what i was getting at it's like it's what? hard too
2: because when you start talking about counterfactuals like i mean i love counterfactuals actually but it's how different of a world is the counterfactual and by that i mean hmm. a lot of what b- made bart bart is that he was swiss hmm. so are we talking about a, a counterfactual world where bart is an american
1: yeah that's fair so
2: uh, you see what i mean no. yeah <laughs> that starts to be like too far beyond what we can even you see what i mean like um because the reason I say that too is, and I think I mentioned this there, I certainly do in my other book too. Um, I could see Bart uh, kind of being sympathetic with some of the views that say, oh well, maybe the part of the problem here was the West should not have uh, you know, enlarged NATO. They shouldn't have sort of done these things. you know, America has certain problems, it's done too. Russia has is evil, but then America's not kind of completely uh pure you know there's some of these kind of realists who say these kinds of things and that um yeah he, he said some things like that for sure i mean he 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 thought that communism was was bad but he also thought that the american capitalism was bad he didn't think it was quite as bad but he he thought it was it had some bad things so um i could see that and, th- and then that gets back that gets my point about you know Niebuhr was an American, so I'm, I'm reading how he would read it as an American. I think he could see um, something like how the Americans have the American policy over the last year has been as pretty good in a world where there's no really great options. You know, that's how I would read
3: Niebuhr. Well, um, on the note of nukes and what we're getting to, um, you make a really interesting point that Niebuhr, I didn't know this, Niebuhr was really um, uh, encouraging of, of Bart's um, understanding of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you, I want to bring in the point, a point uh, you made earlier as well. So where would you think, or where do you think Niebuhr and Bart are unified in their concepts of tragedy? Where do they diverge? And the third question, um, what would, what are the differences today? And how do we read Niebuhr and maybe Bart as well from different lenses for our problems today in terms of yeah. tragedy? Well, I think
2: I'll focus on that last one because that's the one I have the most sort of to say. on. <laughs> um, and that was kind of getting back to the point I had earlier. I wanted to sort of bracket and bring back in. Um, yeah. I think one of the things you have to do when you read Niebuhr is imagine a kind of uh, naive liberal liberalism that I don't think even exists anymore. It's, you know, when he starts critiquing liberalism, it's not like he's critiquing what we think of as some sort of progressive politics in America today. It's a much more, uh, a much more naive kind of view of, you know, we can just, if we just educate people and sort of, um, we can make the world better just by kind of going around and um, being positive and being optimistic and things are, are obviously getting better all the time and these kinds of things. I mean, it's a much more, even all the debates we have in America and in politics, they seem so divergent. I don't think any of them are quite as sort of this naive uh, liberalism that Niebuhr is thinking about. The reason I say that is I think, especially if you look at a book like irony of American history, um, he, he talks in the, that book about how America has this kind of naive belief in itself as completely pure, completely good. And um, that, belief system is paired with an actual practice, which he actually uh, sees the value in, which is a much more pragmatic, like, let's just get things done, we may have to sort of, uh, you know, cross, you know, pull a few cor- corners around here, and, you know, may not all be as, as pretty as we make it out to be. So he he thinks we have this very naive picture of ourselves as sort of sitting on a hill, pure, uh, and so on, paired with a much more um, pragmatic Actual acti- actions that we that we live by And I would actually I argue in this chapter I just wrote That I think today Things have actually flipped And when we read Irony of American History We have to almost read it in a completely opposite way hmm. Part of the reason for that I think is We're actually We're all Nieborians I think now I think all Americans are Nieborians in some sense It's almost like Niebuhr was too effective And the way we see ourselves now There's a A large population, and maybe it's not everyone, but that sees American history actually as a kind of unmitigated history of uh, evil, suffering, domination, and oppression. And um, I would argue that narrative is itself paired with the opposite of what Niebuhr thought at his time, which is paired with an actual, uh, you know, pragmatic politics or pragmatic social uh, life. That's more positive than the story itself would uh, suggest you would find. So, that is, we have a, a narrative of ourselves as Americans, uh, as American history, as an unmitigating story of, like I said, oppression, suffering, and domination. But um, our own, the actual way we live our lives day to day, it's not perfect, but it's better than the story we tell ourselves about America. So, anyway, my point is, I think irony of american history is a an interesting book to read now but in a weird way i have to say i don't know that it's it's all that timely it's almost as if we have to read it as i was arguing the exact opposite of what what he thought uh
0: james k smith just put out um a little article on kind of catching up irony of american history today and he brought up a point that's, that's actually um to kind of push back on what you're saying a little bit about kind of this idea of optimism and mm-hmm. kind of this naive uh, naivety and uh, and a sense of innocence about us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you could and this is what Smith does he bridges that into a uh, white privilege right there is a sense of I mean, we're reading this ridiculous book right now for the last week of October. Who saved a special for Halloween and is defending Christian nationalism? And is that it, for this podcast or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's later on in the month. And Who's it by? Who's who wrote it? Oh my god, Andrew Torba and Andrew. It's, it's so like better.
1: a. It's like a number one seller on Amazon right now. Wow. I
0: Probably heard. because it's a bunch of dudes like us, like wanting to. It's basically it
3: just dominionism. Mm-hmm. but know, it's yeah, very that.
0: positive it's very like Christianity's is going to take over and you know we got to mm. keep running our our separate culture alongside yeah. the mainstream culture and then eventually kind of mm. and but it's a very positivistic very obviously white privileged, mm-hmm. um very innocent like a feeling yeah. of christian innocence um yeah. and oh. And something that James K. Smith brings out is that that was something that actually Niebuhr was blind to as he was writing Irony of American History that still exists today. So I, I think that it's almost mm-hmm. like you keep turning Niebuhr kind of what in whatever new culture that you find yourself within you you, you can always find kind of some application for a lot of That's the true. categories that he was using.
2: Yeah, I I, I didn't I, I certainly wouldn't want to say that it, you can't find anything in it, and I, and I think just his idea of irony is so rich right? and and compared to that tragedy, which was also raised a, a moment ago and the difference between irony and tragedy. And and actually, I, if I was going to be more taking it a step further, I would want to say, I think the kind of story I'm talking about, which I, I take your point is not universal. And there's all these other kinds of Christian nationalists going around and things like that. But the kind of story I'm talking about, I think is a, a form of a tragedy story that would be much uh, benefited by learning about irony and thinking about mm-hmm. uh, Niebuhr's uh, conception of irony.
3: So and by that, I mean, like yeah. that,
2: even when, well, by that, I mean, a lot of times people who are acting in evil ways, Niebuhr would suggest, the results can sometimes be ironic where uh, we, we think that they're completely, well, just a, a good example of that is, uh, although it's still pretty abstract, is a lot of the times people who are, who believe themselves to be do, doing things for, for good are the ones who are actually making mm-hmm. the most harm. There aren't that many people who sort of say, "Let me go around and just harm everyone, and because I hate them, and so on." Right. It's all, all most of the time. People have there's the more an ironic moment where people believe that they're doing the great, doing something great and and mm-hmm. good and of value, and they're the ones causing suffering. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think we we need an image of irony in order to get away from this a, a complete a too simplistic picture of you know these evil people just going around causing suffering and oppression just yeah. because they, they love it or something like that. Yeah. yeah.
3: Can I just ask a clarifying question? Cause um, I, I find your comment about like, you know, maybe we have to reread irony of American history, like not in the same like way Niebuhr would have intended it. So mm-hmm. are you saying like as a culture back in, back then when Niebuhr is alive, right in the 1930s, whenever, Um, people are just like absolutely giddy and they're just like man we're just so good and we're gonna be dude look we got milkshake stands on every corner dude (laughs) have you had have you had this banana split it's amazing but now today we're like absolutely optimistic absurdists we're like this world sucks but you know if you do 15 crunches today you'll feel so much better about dying You know, is that the kind of characterization you're making of our culture today?
2: I think it's, I mean, that's an interesting way to put it. I think I'm also thinking just about, um, I mean, I'm thinking a bit about all the, all the debates that are going on about how to tell the story of American history. Yeah. Um, Since this is irony of American history. I mean, it's, it's Niebuhr's attempt to sort of narrate not only, and he's very much like the debates today. It's, it's an attempt to narrate history not just for purely sort of antiquarian reasons but to actually know who we are now by telling our history yeah. and in that way i'm actually agreeing that um any historical story is is in a way political because you're it's going to influence who you think you are as a people um so first of all i'm saying this much more as a kind of as irony of american history is it's much more of a kind of cultural critique than it is a a sort of for the church. I I don't know. The church has its own role to play in that, but it's, it's a broader, a broader one. So um, I guess I'm saying, you know, Niebuhr thought that the, the broadly kind of intellectual American way of telling American history was one of Americans as Innocent, good people, city no. on a hill, who got away from European evil and decadence to sort of build this great civilization. That doesn't, to me, ring true as the way the kind of broadly educated, intellectual American uh, view yeah. of American history. Uh, of course, there's all these, all these exceptions. There's different counter movements, uh, reactions, and so on. But that, to me, we're talking about the broader way. You know educated people, the way the institutions, the way universities tell the story, the way Mm -hmm. um, schools and so on. It seems to me we've, we've kind of learned Niebuhr's lesson. We've learned Niebuhr's lesson that our history is more mixed and that's good. Like, you know, like we've, we've, we've learned to see ourselves in a more complex way. So then how do we read Niebuhr? Well, maybe we read him by saying, you know, maybe they're in the same way that he saw tension, maybe our, our story of ourselves and our actual uh, social life, uh, the way we actually live is somewhat in tension with the story we tell. It's kind of a hypothesis. I mean, I mean, you know, feel yeah. free to debate it and push well, back. Well,
3: I'm yeah. just because the way I'm thinking about it is, you know, what happens after you know the '50s and '60s up until you know up until now with like Mike Brown and other people dying by the hands of police officers is yeah. we are confronted more with death each day, hmm. which I think is where you're getting at is. The, the innocence behind the American frontier is one of exploration and right. death really isn't in the front of our minds um, except, you know, with world war II and the nuclear age mm-hmm. coming, but there is a sort of sense of overcoming and conquering. Mm-hmm. But when you are like when, when white people come to realize, well, yeah, we actually had a pretty significant hand in this and there mm-hmm. is a sort of reflection, then we are confronting death, maybe not in the best way. Right. We don't have honest conversations about those things, but I, I guess that's the kind of way I'm understanding yeah. your, how you're saying it. I don't know, but.
2: No, that's helpful. I mean, and obviously I mean, Iron American History is written in 1952. It's kind of pre-civil rights movement um, yeah. as a whole. Obviously, society, American society completely changes uh, you know, in good ways after that. Um, so that all has to be, that whole story has to be told.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So back to, back to Bart and Niebuhr. Um, I love the point you brought up about Niebuhr targeting Bartianism as op- or the Bartians as opposed to Bart to the point that even Bart makes light of it and says, basically, I'm not the Bartian either that he's talking about or something like that. <laughs> um, at first, I thought that maybe the- Niebuhr doing this was maybe like a gentlemanly way of kind of not looking Bart in the eye as he's confronting him, as it were. But what you get at here really makes a lot of sense about my previous suspicions about Barr. And let me try to explain this. Um, This may take a second. So, okay, first, I've never understood how Barr gets to socialism. I understand how Niebuhr gets to democracy. I understand how Niebuhr gets to socialism. Um, But I don't know how Barr gets to socialism. I've never understood how Barr gets to any political conclusions if we're simply looking at his dogmatics. So my suspicion has been that Bart just kind of believes in socialism unattached, or at least unarticulated from kind of the narrow scope of his theology. So when Niebuhr goes to criticize Bart's thought as not having political teeth or not having political grounding, Niebuhr has to actually go after what is politically implied by his thought, um, which is discovered among Bartians, right? Uh, rather than you know what he explicitly holds, what Bart explicitly holds, without any theological justification. Uh, so, so first of all, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, mm-hmm. what I'm talking about here. So mm-hmm. m- many of the Bartians you run into these days, um, and we're talking Bartians, um, are you know Harawas, Neo Mennonite types who maintain very strong fidelity with Bart, and they are perhaps more Bartian than bart um, in their political conclusions is mm-hmm. is that a fair characterization
2: in their political conclusions in the sense that they actually take bart's thought to its logical political end whereas bart just had sort of as you're suggesting kind of his own these other political ideas that just swung free of his theology
0: yeah so maybe kind of like and, what you said earlier he's swiss you know um yeah. that might be a reason why he ended up in some places that he does but his theology in a vacuum doesn't have many political ends Mm -hmm. um or virtues Mm -hmm. even it doesn't even have virtues you know um whereas with niebuhr we can sit down and and hash these things out so when bart goes to attack bart he can't really attack bart because bart agrees with him on a lot of things Uh, but Mm -hmm. it's kind of dangling and not really attached to anything right that's kind of go after the bartians
2: yeah that's a good point i mean you know, you you can almost see that in Niebuhr. He's sort of saying, okay, yeah, you you have the right political opinion, but it's not sort of connected epistemologically the right way to your theology, and that's right. what I'm objecting to. Which is a pretty, you know, that that that's pretty uh, complicated point at that at that point. um
0: So it seems I mean, like he's yeah. kind, he's kind of laid the groundwork by implication for Howarth's maybe neo neo Mennonite type Mm -hmm. of expression of Barthianism.
2: How would you connect that with the fact that, you know, um, Hauerwas has, for example, like a very strong pacifist stance, which is a political claim, we could say. And I think he's connecting it pretty clearly
0: to his Christian theology. That's a good question. Well, I think that, I think it actually flows quite easily from a Barthian dogmatic of looking at scripture as Mm -hmm. containing the word of God breaking into reality no matter how alien Mm -hmm. no matter how distinct this is a command from christ regardless of your historical context or what's happening um christ says you know turn the other cheek
1: Mm -hmm. well and i would just like throw in there also like there's a sense in which i think Niebuhr believes just to kind of add what uh cliff is saying is seems like Niebuhr, Niebuhr believes that your theology should somewhat safeguard you from falling captive to tyranny. Whereas mm-hmm. Bart, it doesn't really seem like that's like there's any theological safeguard to that. You know I mean? It, it, mm-hmm. Maybe there is, I'm not a Bartan scholar, but it seems like because there aren't political ramifications, you can kind of fall victim to that e- more easily. Um, and that's actually, I was really glad Cliff asked this question because this is kind of what I was trying to get at, but I didn't articulate very well at the beginning.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a very interesting point. That it is that idea of a kind of safeguard that I you probably don't have in Niebuhr. I mean, in Bart, a couple books that are interesting on this is like Nigel Bigger has a. It's an old book, like from twenty-five years ago, thirty years ago, called "The Hastening That Waits: Karl Barth's Ethics," and he shows, and somewhat humorously shows, you know that. Bart thought there were all these sort of pretty narrow political implications or ethical implications of very specific kind of theological ideas uh, even scriptural ideas, some of which are very tenuous. And, you know, we might not be very kind of um, convinced by also Jerry McKinney, Gerald McKinney's book on, he has two books now out on Bart's ethics that came out of the last decade. I mean, Bart's ethics is so, it's honestly so complicated. It, it would take like a whole like seminar to, to go into. And it and it also depends on what part of Bart, like there's that he does kind of ethics under church dogmatics two, two uh, volume two, part two. And then again, in church dogmatics, volume four, part three, and the, those two, there's like maybe several decades in between or something. Um, and those, the two ways of framing ethics in those two are somewhat quite a bit different. The first uh, is what the first is a kind of more, much more clearly a kind of divine command um, ethics, which we might call a kind of an occasionalism, wherein we imagine that um, what, we're, what we're supposed to do morally is sort of commanded by God in the moment almost so that we we in some ways cannot come up with these universalistic principles because that would sort of take away some sort of uh, authority from god to who who actually is acting you know uh, all the time and then in four um, 3 published sometime later he's still talking about the command of god so his ethics is still a, a divine command ethics in this most fundamental sense but he starts talking about it in almost kind of natural law terms in the sense of he'll talk about, you know, it was always within the command of God. It's always like the, it's like a history of, of the command of God on some issue. So it starts to become that we have more resources to look at in Christian tradition and history to know kind of what are the norms. Um, but there's always still, you know, the, the kind of borderline case in Bart. So we can never have a complete absolute it's hard to it's hard to imagine how let's say how we can have a complete absolute because there is this kind of borderline uh, moment when when we have to listen to God's command. So it's those are kind of um, it's very complicated with Bart. So I we we have to postpone that for another, another yeah.
0: Time. You you bringing up all these citations of dogmatics reminds me of a story of my friend visiting a church. Um, I think this was in Wisconsin somewhere and he was visiting the church and the the pastor invited him to their church dogmatics book study. And he said, we're just finishing up. And my friend said, what do you mean? You're just finishing up. How long have you been doing this? He said, 25 years. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: That's, that's amazing. Holy (laughs) cow. So, so I know I just asked, but, um, there, there was this really, I think there was, you know, and I'd love to go into both of these, but I'll just pick one of them. Um, There's a sense in which Bart seems to kind of go after Niebuhr's credibility based on the fact that he's not involved in some of these conflicts. Mm. Um, And I actually like, that was very, I I thought you did a really good job. I mean, I obviously you're professional and everything, but you just did a really good job highlighting that. It was very eye opening. He says, Hey, he's this hard-boiled, hard-boiled politician safe in his castle. You know, and it's like, yikes, you know, that, that really hits home, um, which I, I I can kind of see what Bart is getting at. But I think one of the ways that he exposes Niebuhr for doing this is that Niebuhr has this this kind of obsession or fixation on the fact that you need prophetic outcry in order to be considered taking proper action. Right. Does that make sense in my egg dragon? Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is Niebuhr too quick to think that outcry is a necessity of prophetic religion? Mm um do you think that's a like a you having kind of looked at both of these characters do you think bart is is correct in that or do you think that he's just kind of angry with neighbor
2: i mean i think i think um in that particular moment i'm trying to think how to get at this i mean bart is just saying look i had particular i mean things were at stake in what i could say i was trying to protect people i was in interaction with i wasn't just sort of standing above the fray and saying, here's my opinion about things. I mean, I was actually, you know, he was really involved with some of these yeah. congregations and so on that were really in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, I think was- Bart also had to some extent, a kind of, uh, I talk about this in my book on, on Barton Bonhoeffer. He, you could call this, I don't know, kind of chameleon-like, but I think he thought that he should always uh, sort of specify what he had to say for his audience. And sometimes he could say different things, slightly different inflections. And he he did a lot of this uh, kind of in the in the latter part of World War II, in the sense of even even National Socialism, in the sense that he didn't want to give a kind of jingoistic, uh, you know, go kill the Nazis when he was speaking to Americans. He, he he was more willing to do that to the British, actually. Apropos of our earlier comment, um, but you know when he was speaking to those who were right there and and really really threatened in a, in a very immediate way by National Socialism he um, he had one thing to say, let's put it that way. And when he was talking to the Americans, he also thought that they had a just war to fight against uh, the Nazis, but he was he wanted, he would say things about how the entire Western uh, cultural history is is to some extent responsible for National Socialism. In other words, he didn't want it to be kind of seen by the Americans as this completely Manichaean other that just has to be... Uh, uh, seen as outside this outside demonic evil, that we're the good and we're fighting the evil. He wanted them to kind of see how they they could have almost been in the same position. Let's put it that way. So even here, so here I think he's 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 a bit defensive against Niebuhr and saying like, look, like I'm I'm here on this side. Of, I'm on the continent. I'm nearby this I'm involved. You're you're kind of just in New York City, just sort of pontificating.
1: Well, it's it's interesting because it's almost like, and this is I guess what I was trying to say is it's interesting because it's all of a sudden there's like a switching of roles where he kind of exposes Niebuhr for being the idealist and him he's being practical. Yeah. He's saying, Look, I, I had, I had practical things that I was trying to accomplish and you're accusing me of being too idealistic, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like, it, it made me think about how in recent years I've, I've, I've seen political outcry as I mean, sorry, prophetic outcry as kind of the, the pinnacle of, you know, yeah. Christian uh, theology being applied. But the truth is it's not always, I mean, it's sometimes it's more practical than that. So Yeah, I I, I thought you did a really good job highlighting that. I just wanted to bring it up. Thank you, excellent, Aaron. Do you have anything? Yeah,
3: I just have one more question, Um, Josh. So, um, what in your mind are the theological or social, social ethical concessions that Niebuhr makes, either willingly or just out of ignorance, by making Christianity intelligible to the modern man?
2: Hmm. that's a really good question i'm not even sure i have a completely good answer but even just how well articulated it is i I appreciate that
3: (laughs) well it's a quote ripped out of your uh, paper so (laughs) oh is it (laughs) well well sort of that was really good i must have written that
2: yeah um so what concession like where does he kind of sell sell out christianity
3: (laughs) i mean he's selling he's basically telling bart you know you're selling out a bit by having this holy other god Mm -hmm. who you now you can't make any sort of judgments on moral mm. claims because you relegate religion to some otherworldly thing. Yeah. But I mean, if you give this imminent or eminent critique uh, that Niebuhr's doing on the social practice and social theory stuff, yeah, is he make, what kind of concessions is he making theologically or even, I mean, I think, you
2: know what I would say to that actually is I think Niebuhr collapses theology a bit too much into ethics. And by yeah. that, I just simply mean in a very f- formal way but also a way that was influenced by Kant by yeah. Kierkegaard if you look at Kant's religion within the bounds of mere reason so, uh, yeah. you find a lot of similar ideas that you should do in Niebuhr I think he thought that the way to kind of um, make religion like make Christianity remain relevant was through ethics here even Tillich disagreed with him even Tillich was uh saying no like we, we have to actually try to argue for the relevance of Christian theology in its own terms, metaphys in terms of a metaphysics, mm-hmm. in terms of a, a knowledge, not just in terms of what it, its role is for ethics. Mm. And I think that has some big ramifications, you know, where um where his Christ Niebuhr's Christology ends up being a bit too thin for what I would think like a Christian church really would need. Um
3: mm.
2: but I think if you it, it I, I do find it very interesting if you go look at, and read Kant's religion uh a lot of Niebuhr is in there. <laughs> yeah. Or a lot of Kant is in Niebuhr, we should say. That's so,
3: really, yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. And the idea being precisely in Kant, that, you know, the way that we legitimate and make religion relevant is through its Critics. ethical implications. Yeah.
3: yeah. I guess it's a... The are within like, me uh, and
0: the stars above me.
3: Yeah, because the intelligibility of Christianity mm. really doesn't really make sense. Because when with Niebuhr's conception of myth, it really can't make sense or... You know, have an imp- empiricism on creation
0: Genesis one through eleven. You know, like right. this really makes sense. But yeah, but, yeah. Last question, Josh. So in the twentieth century, you got these two towering theologians who have arguably more weight and influence than any theologian since. And I think that that's true. By the way, Niebuhr and bar I, right I don't think any single theologian has had that influence. And for that, for lack of a better term, celebrity Mm -hmm. as Bart and Niebuhr since. But of these two theologians, in respect to overall reception and how well sustained their influence has been, did history choose the wrong one? Which do you think history chose? That's the question, too. I don't know. Uh, I would say that Bart is far more more influential. Yeah.
1: I think Bart's way more influential. So, did the right
0: one? did history remember the right one and which was Bart in your, which is Bart. Was that the right one? Well,
2: yeah. I mean, I, um, I, it's a cop-out, but I think in the chapter, I say, I think we need both uh, because I think they're doing different things. And I think that's where Niebuhr himself admitted they were doing different things. I think we need, you know, where I would see, Maybe what should happen is religious studies. You know, the whole field of religious studies is kind of. I'm trying to be politic here, but, you know, it believes that it it believes that it's um, not normative, that for the most part, like it, it tries to be a kind of a descriptive alternative to to theology as a normative enterprise. Um, but it's almost like all of religious studies should be doing something more like what Niebuhr did. <laughs> I agree. And in a sense they are, but I guess what I'm saying is they actually already are, but they should just be more honest about it. So all I mean by that is we probably, we probably do need a kind of more um, an under a description and understanding of religion, of the history of religions, of the value of different religious traditions and how they, what, what kind of their, we need some kind of, we probably do need in a modern world, some kind of perspective that looks at these traditions in the way that Niebuhr did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Niebuhr would, would talk about, you know, he, he would talk about all, all kinds of religions, oftentimes somewhat ignorantly and people today would find it offensive and so on, <laughs> but he would say things about Buddhism and and compare Christianity wow. and Buddhism and Christianity and Islam. And so he would do a lot of what we think of as kind of a, a version of uh, comparative religion. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is we, 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 we need, we certainly need a kind of uh comparative historical account of religions because people are under are interested in understanding all the history of religion. Um, and maybe something like uh, maybe a version of that, that's more openly uh, acknowledging of its normativity in the way that Niebuhr was, would be a good, a good way out of what I see as a dead end of a lot of religious studies. Um, but then We also need a full on full-blooded normative theology, I would say. And Bart's a good example of that kind of thing. Even if we end up disagreeing with a lot of Bart and even disagreeing with his methodology, I should say.
0: Well, I guess I'll accept that. (laughs) (laughs) Keep keep in mind, only one of them has a kick podcast and that's right here, baby. All right. Let's, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Josh. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, this book. Uh, thank you for this book. This is going to give us endless fodder to chew on for years. I had I had an idea of, of
2: doing a uh, a neighbor podcast. I have to say, and uh, you, <laughs> you, I would say you beat me to it, but I I just sat around thinking about it for three years. That's really what happened.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we're always looking. We're always looking for friends to the podcast. Yeah, right? we'd yeah. love you to have yeah. you back.
2: Yeah, I'd yeah. love to. Be
0: back. Yeah, awesome. Uh,
2: but like. Definitely get some other authors uh, of Dr. Hampton. Oh, I wanted to plug another book. Cause you were talking uh, Zach about, do you know about Robin Lovins book on the church in a divided society that just came out? Because if you have pastors and yourself who are interested in that, it's called what to do when no one is listening. Um, but the subtitle is leading the church in a polar leading the church in a divided society. Okay,
1: yeah, I'm writing it down.
2: It's by Erdman's. It's a short book. Uh with uh but it's it's geared to pastors i want to give a plug for that and for the i hope you guys will under, interview other people for this uh, oxford handbook too
0: absolutely thanks uh, a lot to cool. be all over it yeah well that about does it for this week's episode of love thy neighbor we want to once again thank our guest josh malden for coming on with us uh, make sure to check out his oxford handbook um on niebuhr uh, you can buy it on Amazon. And thank you to our audience for continuing to listen in. Check us out next week as we'll be interviewing uh, Niebuhr scholar Matt Anderson. Make sure you uh, like and subscribe, write us a review, and follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Niebuhr, for news and updates. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.